Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming to you from Pwop Studios, where I just don't have the right adapter. Ever. <laughs> you ever have a day you like that? You have boxes and boxes and boxes of adapters. In fact, I'm pretty sure Brandon's labeled all your adapters, oh, too. Oh, that's true. That's true. And <laughs> But still, you know, I need a left-handed, reverse-threaded hemta, and I can't find it. <laughs> and I turn this place upside down looking for it. And you ever have a day like that where you just can't yeah. find the right adapter? Maybe you don't, but audio is... I don't know. I absolutely do. Right? Audio and, is and, one of those fields where everything is... There's nothing standard and all the adapters mean something. And now you have males and females and mono and stereo and triplio and you name it. It's even worse than, than IT. And then I, and then I go to B and W and I order five of them. So I'll always have a spare right. with fast shipping. Yep. And while I'm waiting to it for arrive, I find it. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You would think, you okay, would think. you would think that a TRRS adapter, which is what your phone has, right? It's both a stereo headphone and a microphone yeah. to a line in, line out splitter or connector so that you could connect it to, you know, professional sound equipment yes. would be something that exists. You, you, know, you would think that it would be a very popular thing. Yeah, there'd be a ton of them. Because, you know, let's say if you're a DJ, you want to use your iPhone, you know, you want to have uh, line outputs, yep. you you have a, a podcast and you want a professional microphone, you want to turn that signal into a line level signal, so now you need an attenuator, but oh, the jacks don't work, oh, now you need a coupler, come on, <laughs> it's ridiculous. You end up with this this spaghetti contraption that's, exactly. you know, four things plugged into each yeah, other, four and things. then somebody touches it and it feeds back. Yeah, and you step on it and the whole thing breaks. Just doesn't I work. love it. Anyway, that's my rant, and I'm sticking I to like, it. I like Randy Carl. Randy Carl is a good Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I just have one of those mornings, you know. All right. Well, anyway, run the music because I got something very cool for Better No Framework. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? Okay, so this is a YouTube video of a session at GoLang UK mm. where Liz Rice reverse engineers, and builds a container from the ground up in Go. Oh, I love it. That's so cool. That's so John Skeet, right? Yeah. Let's let's just rewrite a a sink and a wait, right? Right. Yeah, except she's building a container in Go. I love it. It's like, let's find out what this thing really is. And now let's write one. (laughs) And now let's have lunch. You know? It's like, what? (laughs) I like smart people. Smart people are fun. Yeah. So, it's great. So, if you go to 1447.pwop.me, that'll take you right to YouTube and uh, enjoy. Awesome. Nice find. And uh, let's thank Steve Strong for finding that one. Ah, more uh, app v-neck smartness. Yep. That's right. Love it. Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show 1212, the one we did with Vishwas back in November of 2015. Wow. Talking about cloud-oriented programming. And I realize we've been checking in with Vishwas roughly every year for good cloud architecture advice. Yep. And this is no exception. Mm. And uh, in that show, we were really talking about, are you taking advantage of the features of cloud? You're not just moving your app, but doing using the cloud for what it's really good at. Right. And Charles had this awesome comment. He says, the other thing about cloud-oriented programming is that in the cloud, APIs come and go. Yeah. If you own a server, you can run the same software for 10 years without having to change the code. 
in the cloud, any layer used, whether that's the SQL database, storage, queues, jobs, and so forth, can and will probably be deprecated after a few years, which may force devs to have to rewrite code on short notice. Mm. That's not really an issue for an actively developed app, but in the corporate world, there's a huge amount of one-off and done type development. I don't know if I really subscribe to this completely, Charles, because the most of the part, the stuff they've kept around the cloud, they just keep keeping it around. Yeah, so but you it, know what? There is a, there is a delete button. Yeah. And you can press it. Yeah, but we're talking about the cloud provider oh, keeping yeah, yeah. stuff around for an extended period yeah, of time. Yeah, they'll be around. And it, it's just like, it is not in the best interest of the cloud provider to ever break your app. Right. That decreases their income. I think they're strongly incented to keep that stuff running. And they have a better infrastructure to do so. And keep it secure. I think that, you know, uh, anytime I get pushback on, you know, well, how secure is the cloud? And I say, well, what do you trust? Your guy versus or your small team versus, you know, all the smart people at pick your favorite cloud provider that whose job it is, is to make sure that you're secure. I don't know. Well, that's the point. And it's the, arguably the best people in the world, right? right? They get to work on, they're at such scale, they get to work on individual aspects of security for their entire job. Like it's right. pretty compelling for that model. Yeah. And I mean, I'm more afraid of the APIs coming and going internally when an old server dies and we don't have a good copy of the mm. source code and mm. so forth. Far more likely to keep a VM alive in the cloud for an extended period than you are keeping anything alive on-prem. You know, when they ask that question, well, how secure is the cloud? It's like, well, how secure is your stuff? Right, exactly. Let's set a bar and then decide, you know, what's reasonable. Because you can always nitpick reasons why it isn't good enough. And let's start with, you know, who's got a key to the server room, right? (laughs) Let's start with the dumb stuff, and then we'll get to the high-tech stuff. Yeah, well, and I remember a few years ago when the FBI raided a local ISP and just simply took all of the servers because they were going after one uh, uh, child porn site. And so when they and the judge just didn't understand. And so you're talking a thousand customers down and their machines are gone. Talk about collateral damage. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. But uh, hopefully things are more sophisticated. And and let's face it, the cloud, you know, good luck. I don't care what forklift you show up with. (laughs) You're just not going to pick up all the servers. That's right. Anyway, Charles, uh, spark some good debate here. Thank you so much for your comment at .NET Rocks Mug. It's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks Mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. And go. <laughs> go. Nice one. Right Love now. It. Right now. All right. Wait, this is a time-shifted medium. This makes no sense. (laughs) It's it's really kind of a crazy feeling. If any of you have ever get to do a podcast that comes out two months after you recorded it, it's kind of strange. You can't talk about current events. Nope. You just have to live with that sort of reality. Stuff will have happened since we recorded this show, so let's just not refer to it. And somebody's going to call you on it because you didn't predict the future. Yes. That's what always happens. You're always going to be wrong. Okay. Okay. Yes. These these are first worldly problems. The first worldly Very problems. Very first worldly. Yes. Slash soapbox angle brackets. Mm-hmm. All right. Here we go. A little ranty today, my friend. I, I like it when you're a little ranty, but I'll get over it. It's usually me. Today it's you. <laughs> I'm all over that. I'll get over it. All right. <laughs> Mr. Lele is responsible for assisting organizations in envisioning, designing, and implementing enterprise solutions related to cloud and mobility. Vishwas brings close to 25 years of experience and thought leadership to his position. 
and has been with AIS for 20 years. A noted industry speaker and author, Mr. Lele serves as the Microsoft Regional Director for Washington, D.C., and is currently a Microsoft Azure MVP. Welcome back to the show, Vishwas. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Richard. Glad to be back. Yeah, glad Always to Always excited you to have you on the show, man. I get smarter in this hour. Yep. What's new with you? What is new in Cloudland? Well, you know, everything is new in Cloudland. Mm-hmm. You know, things change. <laughs> every day, right? it seems. Yeah, what time is it? change every day, right? So, so the thing that it is going to be new is guaranteed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you just have to find things that, uh, that, you, that apply to you and follow them and track them and things like that. Well, you know what? We're time shifting. So let me ask you this question this way. What was new in April? Because <laughs> it's June now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah, I'll be hard-pressed to just, you know, I, I have to go through the, the update site for, for this various services to know exactly which release of which um, uh, software uh, on, was on which month, etc. Yeah. I it's, pull it's up the hard- Azure blog and, I mean, every day, there's a new feature announced, either that's in beta or it's generally available. It's almost every day. Yeah. And, and you know, complicating that, that feed also is that, you know, not only are there new services, but then, you know, they will also announce services being available in the different regions of the world and, and different versions of the service or a new capability of an existing service. So uh, if you have an RSS feed uh, for the Azure updates, it is, you know, lighting up every day with with a few updates man crazy Uh, and i wonder if it's going to settle down like i feel like Mm. microsoft is in a race to sort of round out a product set but at some point it's going to be okay we're there yeah i see i see them all as in a race to somewhere and it doesn't look it looks like everybody has to work harder for less you know I don't know if it is going to settle down. I, I don't see any signs of it settling down. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it is the new normal. Uh, hmm. You know, they are able to upgrade the, the software without having to ship boxes and wait for people to upgrade. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so so I don't see it slowing down. Uh, we will see. Uh, maybe in a year when we talk again, we will see the signs of slowing down. But just looking at the things that are in public preview and slated for release for the next few months and the velocity of new data centers coming up across the world, mm. it just don't seem like it's slowing yeah. down by any means. It occurs to me, Carl, you could be do- better know an Azure feature. Ah, yeah, that's right. And we'd never run out. And there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. Actually, why don't I do that? Why don't I, uh, or, or just better know cloud features in general. There you go. Because there's, you know, people are using all sorts of cloud things. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I kind of cool like idea. that. Cool idea, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, how are you feeling about the reliability of the cloud these days, Vishas? Like, do, what's your advice to your customers when they worry about these outages? Because they do happen. They do happen, absolutely. And, and you know, of course, you read about the ones that are major outages. Mm. Uh, and you, you get to read about them or hear about them in the, in the nightly news, which is crazy. But, uh, you know, there are other outages that happen that don't get reported because they may be limited just to your cluster or your portion of the network. Yeah. So you have to worry about those as well. Right. And that's really interesting. I mean, it's just uh, 
on one hand, and I'm putting my IT hat on, the great thing about the cloud is it's somebody else's fault. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, there's this, actually, we really don't want that ever down. What do we do? That's right. That's right. You know, you know, uh, you don't have a single throat to choke. As uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I may be borrowing this this line from Scott Guthrie's presentation. I mean, I've heard a few months back or a, or a year or two back that you you people think that you know uh, who am I going to go to if certain thing is unavailable? Yeah. And who am I going to just call and say walk up to this machine and fix this for me? You can't. Right. And and this is I think is you know your question essentially uh, about uh, you know how do you deal with this kind of reliability? So you know I was giving this talk at at Ignite uh, last year, and you know every single talk was about uh, you know new capabilities, you know increased number of nines and things like that. And yeah. here comes along my talk, which was about you know how do you deal with failures. And, and, you know, a few people who came to my talk said, well, uh, so is your fundamental premise here of this talk that uh, there can be increased failures in the cloud? If that's the case, we are out. We, you know, why is it more, more failure prone? And my answer is that, well, you are now building applications that are dependent on so many more services. Yeah, sure. Essentially, our, everybody's goal ultimately to go to the cloud is an increased or I should say decrease time to value. I want to release my software more quickly. And in order to do that, I want to take advantage of these new capabilities that the teams are building so I don't have to write that code myself. So I'm cobbling together these services to push out the functionality that my customers need more quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, once you're doing that, just simple math, even if each service that you have has let's say three nines of availability, your composite availability is going to go down, right? That's just pure, pure fact. So sure. that's, that's going to happen. And, you know, it's not a question of, well, if there's going to be higher chances of failure, do I go to the cloud or not? But you're going to the cloud because of other reasons. And how do you make that trade-off where you have granted reduced control, uh, but but then you also have this agility of new feature development. But how do you make this trade-off work? Well, the way you make this trade-off work is you think of failure that can happen to your application upfront in the design process for your application. And and that's, you, sh- you accept that failures are going to happen and you design your applications in a manner that will be resilient to those failures. And by doing so, you're again taking control of the availability of your application. You also really need to ask yourself, do I care if it's down for an hour? You know, is that going to affect my bottom line? Is it going to affect my customers? There may be situations, even high volume situations where, you know, it just doesn't matter. But, um, but if you're, you know, if you're, if you're minute by minute, second by second, losing a lot of money, losing customers, making customers angry, now you've got, now you've got a problem. That's a that's a great point, Carl. Uh, you, you know what I was recommending, and you know Richard and I were talking about this offline on an email thread. That uh, you know I got more and more interested. Uh, we have several customers we have taken to production, and having uh, sat through many of these what we call major incident calls, which are like you know pressure cooker calls where. Mm-hmm. 
you know, something has gone down and you're constantly trying to figure out, you're checking your instrumentation, you're trying to figure out what is down. And these are really high pressure situations because, you know, once again, you don't have somebody to go walk up and, and do something. Mm, right. It just, it just became clear to me that, that, you know, availability has to be part of the design process, as I said earlier. And then I began to do some more research and, and sure enough, you know, as part of the, you know, trustworthy computing effort and the software secure development lifecycle, I think it is SDL. There was a part of that which talked about failure mode analysis. And it turns out, and I, I'll point your listeners to the documentation, some of the failure mode analysis, uh, you know, which the, the origins of that is into other engineering disciplines like mechanical engineering and bridge design. Some of those concepts were taken and applied into IT by Berkeley in 2002. And some of those concepts were part of the failure mode analysis. And it turns out that some of this work is done internally by these engineering teams. And the idea is that, uh, you know, as you're designing an application, you know, we are all used to drawing UML diagrams for class diagrams and object diagrams and, and subsystem diagrams and what have you. But then there's a new type of diagram being proposed called the component interaction diagram, where not only do you have all the components of your system, but you also identify how any given component can go down. So you identify the certificates, you identify, hey, if I make too many calls between these two components, I can be throttled. Mm. And that's a, that's a uh, potential availability uh, point. So you draw this diagram, you take every single component, you figure out what if each component goes down. And then uh, once you've done this analysis, you, you come up some sort of a workbook, which they call resilience modeling and analysis. And I'll, I'll provide a link again for that. Mm -hmm. and, and there you say that, you know, think through and say, what if this node goes down? What if this line goes down? Yeah. What if this component goes down? And are you able to detect a failure that may happen here? And back, it took me a while, Carl, but I'm trying to drive to your point. Once you've done this analysis, you come up and say, yeah, I'll be able to detect it and it'll be a minor inconvenience to my users. Right. Fine, then I don't have to deal with that, as you said. But, you know, this can be a bigger problem and I can lose customers and, you know, I cannot be down for, let's say, my recovery point, recovery time objective is three minutes or five minutes. Yeah. Then I need to start thinking about Maybe I need to spin up another instance, or maybe I need to have a pre-existing instance in another data center. Mm -hmm. I need to fall over, but what happens to my data? Should I be log shipping my data off to the secondary data center? What happens? What if I, you know, process the same message twice? You know, I, I was in the midst of processing an incoming invoice, let's say, yeah. and my application went down. Great, I failed over to the West Coast data center, but Am I going to inadvertently reprocess that invoice? Do I have duplicate message handling built into my application? Yeah. All of those things really apply here. So this is a straight up architectural problem, just right. coming up with a design, whether it's cloud or not. Redundancy right. built into every layer and being able to know the difference between, you know, being able to determine the state of, of a transaction in no matter where you're, where, no matter where you're pointing it to. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there are two sort of related things there. So, 
you draw this component interaction diagram and you have, let's say, you have web roles, you have Redis cache, you have uh, some database tier, you have networking, uh, virtual networks, you have subnets, and then you draw a line each through each one of them and say, what if this fails? What if this fails? And then how am I going to detect it? And how am I going to recover from it? Mm. And then, you know, the other thing you need to do is you need to be able to simulate many of these conditions because, you know, if you have not simulated them, you don't know what the impact of that failure is going to be to the yeah, end user. Right. And this is where Chaos Monkey and, and other tools like that come into play, where you simulate those kinds of failures and see what happens. Right. That's an important aspect of resilience engineering as well. Hey, Vishwas, just hang on for one minute because we got to take a moment and uh, pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And you're listening to .NET Rocks. Carl and I are talking to Vishwash Lele, and I'm reminded of uh, experiences that I had before the cloud was really a thing. Uh, and I would do those architectural diagrams for a VP because they always led with that, oh, no, we need 100% uptime. Yeah. And then when you actually price out 100% uptime, redundant data centers and automated failover, you know, hot swapping and so forth. Mm. And you compare that to a manual failover. Like if you're willing to be down for 15 minutes, but you're still paying for 24-hour a day support, uh, a service so somebody can switch it over, it's a heck of a lot cheaper. Like 99% is pretty darn good. Yeah. Do you find going through that process, is it a cost analysis too? What is the real cost of downtime? Absolutely. Uh, it is a cost analysis of what is the what is the impact of that downtime. And then there's an equally important cost analysis of, you know, it's easy to say that, you know, I'm going to just have everything redundant, which means right. I'm going to have this infrastructure in another region. But then there's a cost of doing that as well, right? Yeah. All the machinery that you set up, is that cost uh, that you need to incur to have that resilience in place warranted by your uptime requirements and and the loss that you may incur as a result of unavailability of the application. Interesting. Yeah. And it, and it, the nice thing is when you can start working those numbers, that real value proposition, you also get into, that's my budget to fix it. You know, once you know how much that costs, it's like, well, now can you build an ROI around the amount of money you'll need to spend to make that happen? Absolutely. And, you know, what is what is interesting is that uh, this is where you, you said it at the beginning that uh, 
you know, um, people have moved their applications to the cloud and are, we hear a lot of, of lift and shift. Mm-hmm. And there are advantages to that clearly because, you know, you may be running out of your data center capacity or, you know, the cost per VM per hour in your data center is just too high given all of the costs that they're incurring. Uh, so there may be reasons, but you, you have not put yourself in a position to take advantage of all of the capabilities. So there are increasingly available options where, uh, take Azure SQL database, for example. Uh, you know, previously, if you were trying to have a high availability cluster with something like always on, there's a fair amount of engineering required uh, mm-hmm. for you to have the listener and, you know, make sure you, you're able to uh, fail over to another data center. But look at uh, something like Azure SQL database, just as an example, which is a PaaS service. They've built a great capability uh, called the Active Geo Replication, where you can replicate your data and they provide you all kinds of recovery time objectives and, and you know, give you those guidance about how you need to architect. That makes it easier to set up those kinds of environments. And it's not just about failover. You also have to worry about failback. You know, you're on East Coast, you fail over to the West Coast temporarily, and now East mm-hmm. Coast is back up again. And how do you fail back in a manner that's consistent with your data? So, and, and, the, and the fail over to the West, you know, the fact that it survived and maybe it had a couple hiccups, that's fine because it was a failure. But fail back, you want it to be perfectly seamless because it's self-inflicted. Right. You are going to push it back. Right. Yes. I mean, don't, don't forget, people have outages of their own internet access, too. You know, and it, here's another great example, you know, to, to keep all the state in the cloud uh, somehow, because if, let's say, your Wi-Fi goes down, right, where you are at your office, and you pick up your phone, which has cell access, you want to be able to log in and pick up where you left off. Yeah, and I wonder if that's enough. I really like the idea, like the... I, I don't need a hot failover. The site goes down. The idea that when I come back, when the site's back up, you haven't lost any of my work, I'm pretty happy. You know, even if it's just a shopping cart. Right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, that, that um, you know, shopping cart, uh, how have you, well, let's just, just explore this or unpack that a little bit. So let's say the shopping cart is what kind of uh, data store are you backing that up with? Um, is it is it a data store which is available in both locations or both the right. region? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it, you know, uh, shopping carts are more transient and maybe people have put that data in, a, in some sort of a cache. But do you have a persistent cache at that point? And, and you know, does your, you know, cache offering um, allow you to, to move to another data center and have your data available. So those kinds of considerations mm. uh, quickly apply when you're designing. And one other thing, Carl, to extend your point is, you know, you said, uh, you know, outage may be a minor inconvenience, in which case you just document it and you know this is going to happen and you notify your users and then you come back up again. Right. Mm-hmm. The other part is that maybe you want to gracefully degrade your application and may not completely disappear, but uh, you take, for example, Azure Storage, Blob Storage. Now, they have a capability called uh, RAGRS, which stands for Read Accessible Geo-Replicated Storage. And your data is being replicated to another data center, which is at least 400 miles away. Now, you don't have an SLA on on how quickly your data, there is a median time that you, that they, that they tell you about, but there's no 
as a layer around how quickly your data is going to be available in the secondary data center. Uh, there is an API that you can check to see how far back you are. But in, in any case, your data is available in the secondary data center. The keys that you use to access the primary data center are the same as that you access uh, when, when getting to the data in the secondary data center. However, the data is read-only. And at least you are able to provide that experience to your user where the data is available. You tell them you can't edit it right now. Mm. But you have gracefully degraded, but you've just not disappeared from the internet. Your application is still up and people may be fine with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, your failover from the East Coast to the West Coast is a degrade for the East Coast guys because they're going to have more latency. So the site's not going to be as snappy. But, you you know, you're sort of hitting on the two aspects of disaster recovery. How long to back to full service or back to SLA? And what did you lose? Right. Yeah. You know, my brother works in a uh, as a Java developer in a company that is an interface between the DMV and car dealers. And every once in a while, there'll be a, a bug or a series of bugs or an outage or something like that. And he has to spend days rebuilding transactions. Wow. You know, that's just not fun. <laughs> well, it's it's scary too, right? Like what, when you're doing it manually, it's like, what if I make a mistake? Right. What if something's lost? It's yeah, really yeah. hard to detect the absence of a presence. Yeah. You know, something that isn't there. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, if, if I may, uh, you know, take, take you guys back, it is not just about, uh, you know, the feature that a cloud provider may be enabling for you, which mm-hmm. is like I talked about active geo replication or, or uh, RAGRS that I talked about a moment ago. Mm. It, it also goes back to looking at your application and seeing, are you doing things to take advantage of those res- resilience features? Right. So, you know, do you have that retry logic built in, which will then look for a certain resource in a certain region and then and then intelligent enough to go look in the secondary region? So it is also about looking at your code and seeing, do you have that resilience built into your code? And it's not just about the platform services. Totally makes sense. Does it actually make sense then, Vishwas, to to go with cloud-level redundancy, build your app so that it runs on two different clouds? That is an interesting point. Uh, And we're beginning to see uh, some requirements there that, you know, um, what if uh, my entire, you know, there's a big system-wide outage and my application is just unavailable. All of these cloud providers tell you to deploy in more than one regions, of course. But yeah. what if there's a major outage and, and you know, I'm impacted? Should I be thinking about multiple clouds for a really mission-critical application? And uh, that's where we, we start getting into uh, things like, can I be relying on services that are seamlessly available across cloud providers? And, you know, that's where uh, you see a lot of discussion about Docker containers and, you know, can I just move them seamlessly over? Right. And, there's also this this notion of uh, other vendors that come into play, like like Equinix, for example, and there are there are others like Level Three, which uh, you know can act as a very interesting cloud exchange hub, you know, because they they are the termination points for multiple cloud vendors. You know, take for example, if you wanted to do something like Express Route with Azure, which is essentially connecting 
your data center to Azure, you can do it two ways. You can have a dedicated line, an MPLS circuit, or you can move your machine to one of these exchange providers and the Azure Edge has been extended to these pro exchange providers. So you're essentially, you know, connecting one hop away from the, the, the cloud provider. So uh, companies like Equinix Level 3 and others are touting this capability of cloud exchange where, you know, we are the termination point for multiple cloud providers. If you just rent a small piece of uh, equipment, maybe, maybe it's a node, maybe it's some sort of a networking gear, then you can connect these two providers quite seamlessly in a high bandwidth, uh, low latency manner. And then, then it gives you sort of this, this uh, Uber across the cloud reliability. But, but there are, you know, it has to, the application has to merit that. And then you have to have an architecture which allows you to move across these cloud providers seamlessly. Right, right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. <laughs> yeah. It's time to gracefully degrade the quality of this show by containing all the dumbness into one sentence and one <laughs> sentence only. <laughs> and there it was. And now it's time to actually give away a Component One Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Grape City Active Reports is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports, such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports, such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Awesome, dude. And also one of our original, original sponsors. Absolutely. We still love those guys. Uh, so, dude, who's our winner? Today's winner is Barry A. Dwyer. Congratulations, Barry. Golf clap for you, yeah, sir. Yes, golf clap. A round of applause for Barry. And uh, please don't drive off the road, sir. Yep, it, don't die. That's, it's just... It's just we some, lose more listeners that I way. I know. And uh, <laughs> Barry won... Uh, a component one studio from Grape City Component One just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And okay, Vishwas, it's your turn now. You know what's coming. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what do you think you'd buy? You know, I wish I would be better prepared for this question. <laughs> it's not like we snuck up on you in this one, but <laughs> That's <Bob>. true. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, every time there's a, there's a the recording scheduled, uh, I should put up a 15-minute um, meeting request on my calendar to think <laughs> yeah. about this question, deeply ponder about this question. Well. Uh, I'll uh, I'll take my my today's frustration and apply my five thousand dollars to to solve that frustration. Love it. Which is uh, yeah. which is uh, you know I was talking to my daughter who's thirteen and you know she was uh, taking her science project uh, to the school and uh, you know I would invest this. Uh, I'll explain this in a moment, but I would like to invest this this five thousand into getting people to write about, getting some really good writer to write about 
school science projects for girls. Yes. Awesome. Let me explain why. So her project was, a uh, science project was, uh, you know, using PVC pipes to, to figure out the wavelength and the frequency and to be able to play the different notes and figure out which harmonic and things like that. You know, because she she's interested in music. She came up with this. And she said, you know, Dad, I don't feel great about taking this project. Maybe I'm not so good in science. I said, why, why do you say that? I really like your project. Says, you know, every other project was robot related to robotics yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, drones. And, you know, my project about, uh, you know, this, this music and calculating this, this frequency and wavelengths is just not interesting. I don't think people would be interested. And, mm. and uh, am I good in science? And I said, you know, your project is good for what you know and what your interest lies. And, and just because it is not a robotics project or a drones project, uh, which frankly does not interest her. Right. Sure. Does not does not mean she's not good at science. So, so I would hire a good writer to talk about 10 cool science projects for middle school girls. I love it. That is such a great thing. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a good idea. Now, I was just thinking, like, I would think her project would stand out because it's just not like all the other ones. Originality's yeah. got to matter, right? You know, you fly things around, you blow things up, you know, people take notice. But, you know, you talk about music and wavelengths and sound and audio. Nobody cares, Richard. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, no, clearly. I'm Everybody's continuing been my there, done that, saw the crater. I'm continuing my rant. <laughs> Still ranty. Ranty Carl is ranty. <laughs> Back up 38 minutes and you'll know what we're talking about. There you go. Very good, Vishwas. Very good. Yeah, good stuff, man. And, and good thinking, too. Uh, diving back into this a little bit, when we're talking about creating those connections, uh, I've dealt with a couple of customers now that are using Azure Express Route, but that's really between their private data center and Azure. So they have this very, you know, like it's like Azure's in your data center with uh, Express Route. Do you, have you ever used that? Have you looked at it? What is it? First of all, it's just a private connection to Azure. Yeah, it is. It it really has changed the face of how. Uh, well, well wait a minute. I, I have a question. When you say a yeah. private connection to Azure, do you mean a hard connection, like a, a hard hardware, or, or or a route, a direct route past? I mean, what do you mean well, exactly? Uh, yes, yes. So, so you know, um, different cloud providers have different names for it. AWS calls it uh, Direct Connect. Uh, in Azure, we call it Express Route. Uh, the idea is that you are having a low latency connections dedicated connection between your on-premises data center uh, to some region in Azure. And there are two ways to do that. Uh, you could go to your uh, telco provider and say that uh, I want a dedicated uh, MPLS circuit between my data center and the Azure data center. And that's one way of doing that. And you can get different pipes you can you can get a one gig connection or a ten gig connection depending on your needs, and then you know these 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 uh, connections are also redundant. That's one of the features of uh, Express Route is so uh, you know they have redundancy baked into this Express Route connection. So that's one way you can get Express Route. Okay. And, and the, the second approach is that uh, which is also Express Route. You go to a provider like Equinix or 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 level uh, L3 uh, 
or or, or some other provider yeah, and yeah. you essentially move your application to their data center right okay and the cloud provider has moved their network edge into this exchange provider's data center so really what you're doing is you're r- removing as many jumps as possible absolutely so it's like you're one hop away uh, from the azure data center and we're talking about millisecond latencies at this point wow and you don't have to move into like there's lots of data center third party centers that now have express route and and direct connect offered you don't have to be in their data center like you give you the best results if you've got your own you then get an mpls connection between your own and that provider and then use direct connect to get one and you basically one hop I wonder if this bumps up against net neutrality laws. You're essentially paying for better access, right? Oh, well, you are not uh, going over the standard internet. Right, um, okay. So you, you are not navigating the internet for before the traffic that is being routed from your on-premises network to Azure. So so I think that that's the, that's the benefit. And uh, one other term, if I may throw in, because as people get started with Express Route, uh, they 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 think about you know a couple of scenarios without getting too much into the networking uh, fundam- fundamentals or details I should say is some of the Azure services are public services like yeah. storage uh, and and some of the services in Azure are what we call the VNet connected like a virtual machine could be on a could be on a network mm-hmm. and that network is connected directly to your on-prem network so Express Route can handle uh, both public services and and private services. So you're able to uh, work with either of the two types of services. Interesting. But it, it does open the door to that. The real question is, how hard is it to get a route between two cloud providers? So if you're going to put a, an app up on AWS and Azure, how tightly connected are they to each other? Because I, I got to imagine they're not keen to really do that. Uh, they, they are not. Uh, they're not keen to do that. But uh, you know, this uh, I was talking about earlier that there's this notion of a cloud exchange that some of these providers are beginning to 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 um, advertise has been around for some time, but mm-hmm. it is becoming increasingly important because what they claim is that we are a termination point for more than one cloud provider. So by right. hosting something there you get access to two or more cloud providers. So, yeah. so you have the or same... At least the route to them is about the same, right? That is correct. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. You, you connect yourself to those folks, and then they've got the close connections to the two providers, so you can give pretty symmetrical performance. I get the bigger thing here for me, then, is the I hate the concept of going lowest common denominator if you really wanted to do an AWS Azure thing and have to build everything in VMs. I want more platform services, please. Mm. That's true, and, and this is where, uh, uh, Richard, that's a great point, but uh, if you look at uh, services like the Azure Service Fabric, which which, which is sort of the microservices-oriented uh, platform and the service capability, uh, w- they are offering you a version of that to install in Azure, so you can go in and say, please create me a Service Fabric cluster, but they're also giving you the same software to go install it in AWS. Right, yeah. right. So, and so, so you, so you could have, run a version of it, of Azure Service Fabric on AWS. That is right. And, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the whole container story uh, certainly lends itself for 
doing those kinds of things. So if, so if you have broken up your application into into microservices, that which are then you know packaged as containers, then you can move your application uh, between these providers, assuming that you know that you have the same level of orchestration, container orchestration uh, tools, which of course are available across these cloud providers. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, and I would I would hope that it would perform better in Azure. <laughs> that, that, that would be an interesting benchmark to do. I don't know if anyone's ever done it. You mean the service fabric would perform better uh, in, in on Azure? Azure than it would be running in VMs on AWS? I I'm not quite sure because you know essentially if we are talking and just just to be just to be clear for your listeners here we are talking about service fabric, right? And service fabric. Um, Essentially, think of it as an SDK that you're installing on top of uh, something, um, uh, on top of essentially virtual machines. But uh, I do take your point that, uh, you know, there's this notion of VM scale set in Azure, which is not just plain vanilla machines, but, you know, you can have a cluster of machines that can be scaled up and down rather seamlessly. Right. And, and you're installing essentially the service fabric on top of the VM scale set. So you have this capability, uh, VM scale set, uh, which there are newer capabilities like auto scaling and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. which you can take advantage of, which ultimately benefit you. So, so there may be some differences in terms of those capabilities across cloud providers. Does that, um, it sounds to me like you're going to end up needing IT resources to be responsible for the scaling whenever you do an on-premise version of, of service fabric. You will need IT resources when you are doing, that is true, but that is also true from an Azure perspective. Right okay. now, uh, you know, they are not offering service fabric, for example, as a managed service. Like okay, or as an auto scale. Okay. Exactly. So, so you, you have some management uh, uh, concerns or management responsibilities either in the either environment. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. Yeah, and, and I mean, ultimately, the main thing here is I don't want code differences between the two, and hopefully, I don't even have any management differences between the two. That's that is exactly right. Mm. And okay. of course, we we are talking about a point in time. You know, with cloud, the conversation is always point in time. Sure. This may change, but yeah, as of as things stand today, this is indeed true. There's another approach I would look at this at. If, if, if I had the responsibility of doing an architecture like this, I would want to look at, say, Kubernetes and being able to go between Azure Container Services and GCP. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's what I was, I was getting at earlier, that, you know, the Docker ecosystem and, and you know, the clustering uh, and, and the management piece are, have quite a bit of parity across these providers. And that may be very well be an approach to take. Uh, right. If if you if you do intend to have a multi cloud architecture in place, yeah. And what about doing like on premise with cloud as backup? So if your main data center goes down, you go over to cloud. So I mean, I think the 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 opening drug dose, right? That thing that gets you hooked mm. in Azure is those backup services so using the cloud as your redundancy site. Right, and at that point, we we are talking about cloud as a pure DR solution, right? Right. And, right. And you, we we had some customers early on with with uh, discussions where hey I am perfectly fine with running my applications in on premises I have no reason to do that to go elsewhere 
However, I don't have a well thought out or well planned DR strategy. It's just too well, expensive. Most of it is catastrophically expensive to really do, you know, hot yeah. fail over DR. Yeah. And, and even, even if you have that expensive setup, you probably have never had the easy way to test it. And, yeah. and then, you know, uh, you know, simulate that and see what happens. Yeah. So uh, a use case, as you mentioned, Richard, was can I just, uh, you know, periodically copy these snapshot of my applications and if needed, bring my entire data center up in the cloud for the period that I, I you know, my on-premises data center is unavailable. And then, uh, you know, through manual processes or whatever, I'm going to, when everything is, comes back up, I want to go back and still live in an on-premises world. That was the premise of some discussion that we had early on. And, and that may be a good way to get started. And then people think about, okay, now, uh, you know, once I've seen the agility of spinning up these machines and then spinning them down, uh, well, I should now be thinking about auto scaling and maybe I should take advantage of other capabilities. So you right. know, usually that discussion extends beyond that point. Yeah, it's, it is one of those creeping things. You just, you, you add a piece, add a piece, add a piece. And a, I had it. And then, you know... It, most failover solutions are tough enough to test that I've, I can't tell you how many I've bumped into. They just never tested it. And, and let me tell you, if you've never tested it, it doesn't work. I guarantee you. I have a customer right now that uh, insists on having their SQL server and their uh, web server on premise. And, um, you know, it, it reminded me of another customer that uh, a long time ago I had. And they said, no, we don't use cloud. We can't use cloud. And I said, oh, well, uh, uh, you know, that document that uh, that I, I gave you, how can I get that to you? And they said, oh, just put it on my Dropbox account. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we don't use cloud, though. Okay. That's real. Um, and the classic one is the content delivery network, right? I, yeah. I, I've done that a bunch of times where it's like, okay, but the main page is, and the database is rendering off this local data center, but all of the static resources are sitting on a CDN so that you can offload that work. It, it makes a huge difference and can substantially improve performance. Absolutely. makes CDN makes a lot of sense in, in many of those instances. And, and predates cloud. Like, that's been around a long time. It makes, that's, a, it that's, makes a lot of sense. Uh, absolutely. I would argue the biggest thing that cloud's done to CDNs is drive the price down. You know, Akamai used to be, you could not get in the door for less than $100,000. Mm. But right now, I'm using Max CDN on the older daughter's comic, webcomic website. Because, you know, they were hitting, they were doing a million hits a day at one point. And uh, 10 bucks a month for a certain amount of bandwidth. And then when we went over on the bandwidth, it was some additional charges, but just so cheap. Yep. <clears throat> that, that has, that's, that's made a big difference. And, and also uh, many services where, where you can just CDN enable it quite seamlessly. Yeah. That, that's uh, that a big difference as well. Yeah, the comic site was WordPress, and there was literally a plugin for running that CDN. You turned it on, you gave it the keys, and you said, go, and it was done. I'm like, where has this been all my life? Good Lord. You know, we talk about ultimate redundancy being um, spread out among cloud providers, but do you, in reality, do you find people really do that? Like, you know, I split up a, a microservices uh application among you know google azure and aws for example Carl, uh, 
And is that really a good idea anyway? I mean, because now you, you're three times more likely to have an outage than one. But if one goes down, at least you have you have something up. So Carl, I've not I've not seen where you know people are taking uh, you know a few of their microservices and then splitting them across um, their different cloud providers uh, because you know first of all these microservices may have some latency constraints they need to be together on the same cluster or mm. you know they're chatty and things like that yeah. so you have to have that that consideration I think this idea of having some sort of an architectural blueprint that allows you to move from cloud to cloud is appealing to people. And, and, and you know, uh, the idea that I, I should be able to go, uh, go run uh, my application, my, take my application in its entirety and just, you know, if my provider is down for two, three, four hours, right. which is beyond my recovery time objective, uh, maybe I have seeded my container images in yeah. another data center and I have a reduced, you know, Kubernetes a cluster set yeah, up yeah. in another cloud, and and then I'll spin up those Docker containers there and start running there. I still have to worry about the data and making sure the data is available. There. But that's where the cloud exchange comes in, where you know you are syncing the data, and then you have maybe uh, another cluster in a passive mode, and and you know you decide that you know this is a significant enough event where I need to fail over to another cloud provider. And that's a decision that you have to go through very carefully. Mm. You know, who decides that? You know, what, what person in your organization is, is, uh, you know, uh, allowed to make that decision? Because now you have moved your application to another data center. What happens to the data? All of that planning has to be done. So I've not seen that people sort of breaking your application and moving, but I've seen People starting to think about, especially large enterprises, start to think about what is mine? Is there a way for me to do this multi-cloud um, model in a seamless manner? What can I do? And that's impacting the choice of the application platform that they're making. Right, right. Yeah, I I did some work. This is many many years ago. We between two data centers in two different countries, but both in the hurricane zone. And so, you know, failovers are going to be a normal part of our lives because often these islands get hit by hurricanes. And the only way we really got good with it was building symmetrical data centers because we had enough money and failing over routinely. We actually swap loads between the data centers every month. Wow. So, so it just became normal operations that you just went back and forth. And then when you finally swap because it's like, here comes a hurricane. Yeah. How did it end, Richard? knew what they were doing. How did it end? <laughs> uh, that's a different story. And we're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> You know, it's it's uh, Richard. This reminded me of of an interesting story that I heard somebody narrate in in one of the podcasts. I, I can't remember, but but I'll find it and, and and send the link to you. So the story goes like this: that you know they had built these two redundant data centers, and you know they they had a you know a requirement for absolutely the lowest of latencies between them because you know they were committing the transaction to both the data centers right mirror and, yeah. and this is you know some trading um, scenario there and uh, so the story goes that you know the designers of this this uh, data centers they they went around shopping for networking gear and uh, you know in one of those meetings they shows up to this vendor site and and they are asking them for all kinds of requirements and you know what is the latency of this networking gear 
But then they're, the, the spender is a bit surprised because they're also carrying this huge suitcase with them. So they wonder, so what's inside this? And says, you know, this is a fiber. Uh, this represents the fiber between our two buildings. And if you cannot connect two devices with this suitcase full of fiber and give us the latency of less than two milliseconds, we are leaving. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So, so, you know, they went to that extent of, of, of making sure that they're only talking to the vendors who can support the absolute lowest of latency. That's crazy. But awesome. Yeah, it, does. it is awesome. So, Vishwas, what's next for you? I know we're going to see a build, but uh, that's probably already happened by now. <laughs> that's probably already happened yeah. uh, by now. And, uh, you know, um, hopefully, uh, you know, thinking about some of the new things that have been announced at build and, and, and seeing how they, they apply to the things that we are doing. I have still, uh, you know, yet to arrive at a good rhythm for myself uh, for the last two years, just, you know, trying to trying to, uh, you know, follow the happenings that are that are taking place in the cloud and which features apply to me most and my clients mm -hmm. and, you know, still not settled on a good rhythm of, mm -hmm. of, you know, how do you deal with this overload of information that is the cloud? Yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, right after build and the show is available, uh, it'll be one of those overload moments and I'd still be figuring out what to do with that information. Well... We, uh, we definitely want to continue to have you on here regularly to give us the latest about your thoughts and about the technologies that are happening. For sure. No, it, it is a pleasure. This is a, a very interesting conversation. For us, too. All right, Vishwas, we'll see you next time. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 